we've looked at a lot of different subjects over the past couple weeks, and over and over and over again, we've found that where God has some truth and something beautiful and wonderful and good for us, Satan has a deception. He has something that maybe looks similar, but ends up being uh, harmful to us in the end. Marianne Winkler, she was uh, walking along the beach in Amram Island in, German, in Germany, near the border of Denmark, and she found a bottle. And the, the bottle had something fascinating in it. She tried to open it, but couldn't open it. And so her and her husband took a picture of it and broke it open. It happened to be a message in a bottle. And uh, the uh, Marine Biological Society in Great Britain uh, had put something like 1,100 of these out um, about 110 years before, trying to, to measure the currents uh, on the message, it said that if, uh, should you contact us, we will give you a shilling as a reward. Well, that was um, generous of them, I'm sure. Uh, she contacted them, and they'd had no idea what she was talking about. And so they had to go back into their records and, and figure out what had happened. And they discovered uh, that they had sent out about 1,100, uh, a couple hundred of them had returned. And people had contacted them about it over the years. But uh, Mary Ann's was the oldest that had ever been found, over 110 years old, a message in the bottle. So the, the message we're going to talk about tonight is an old message, but it, we don't find it in a bottle. Uh, there's, there's a pun there. Um, we're going to actually find it in God's Word. Uh, so let's dig in and, and figure out what this old message is. Revelation 14 Verse 7, it, it's a verse we've come back to over and over and over again. You could probably quote it by heart. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This verse is recognizing a time period that we're living in. It's really important because we're in the time of the judgment. But then it gives us a call to worship. And the call to worship is a call to engage what part of our bodies? Our big toes? Our minds, yeah, there's something, there's something significant about how our minds connect with God. Uh, it, it's not in our big toe that God speaks to us, although if you hit something with your big toe, it will speak to you. It's in your mind that God connects and speaks with us. So, um, when in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it says, whether you eat, um, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul is recognizing that your entire life and your entire being is relating to God, not just your mind, but your whole body. And of course, you know the saying um, that uh, the, what you do to your body, you do to your mind, just the idea that your body and mind are connected, um, that, that's something that people recognize today. Give glory to God in all things God calls us to do. Now, Maybe when Paul brings this idea of eating and drinking into the mix of glorifying God, maybe he's talking about like high cholesterol diets. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's talking about bad things that, that, that harm us. Um, but we, we see that not just in the Bible, we see it in science. Um, the scientists are telling us that illnesses develop because of what we put into our bodies. So it's significant what we're putting inside us. 
Revelation 14, 9 adds to the picture a little bit. A third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in the image and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand. So not only are we supposed to glorify God with our bodies, but Revelation makes it clear that there's an end time, really significant point at which our minds, represented by our foreheads, are going to be impressed either with an image of God, the the seal of God, or with the image of the beast, the mark of the beast. Um, Our minds are going to be a key factor in the issue at the end of time. Third John 2, Paul, John says rather, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. We're talking tonight about living life to the fullest. And, and when you think about that, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Maybe skydiving, right? Ah. Horseback riding. The, the, the things that just are enriching, maybe, maybe having um, good people around you. But that's not necessarily what most people think about living the good life. You know, people think about living the good life as in, um, I don't know, promiscuity, um, having fun, parties, drinking. The good life is not having any rules. The good life is not, not caring about stuff. The good life is not having responsibility, not having work, not having consequences. Um, but, but God gives us something else. He, he wishes for us good things, the good life. I pray that you may prosper and be in health just as your soul prospers. God's design is that we live a good life. And that good life isn't defined as ruleless or without consequences. It's defined as being healthy. It's defined as being happy, uh, as being prosperous. Those are things that God desires for us. So let's go back as we think about this, this uh, whatsoever you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Let's look at the story of Daniel for just a minute. And, and you've read this story before, haven't you? Okay, so, so Daniel chapter 1, we read about Daniel and his friends uh, being taken captive by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And they're taken from Jerusalem into Babylon, and, and he's got some designs on Daniel's life. He wants Daniel and his friends to be uh, servants of some kind in his, in his court. And so they need to be trained, and they're in this, this university setting, and the king provides their food. And uh, like, like any good university uh, setting, it's, it's uh, what kind of a, a meal? It, it, it's, it's one of those, um, you know, all-you-can-eat buffets where you just go in and, and uh, get whatever you want. They've got cereal out all the time and bread out all the time and, and, and maybe some Asian cuisine over here and, and some pizza over there. Um, it, so if, if you've ever been to cafeteria, that, that's, that's the kind of design. So I don't know if, if Nebuchadnezzar's cafeteria was exactly like the cafeteria we have today, but, um, but it had some, uh, some well, it had lots and lots of options. Unfortunately, they weren't options that Daniel felt comfortable choosing. Daniel was a Jew, and he had some dietary restrictions, some choices that, that uh, the Jews had made about what they should and shouldn't eat. And, he, and Daniel said, no, I'm not going to eat that. And, and part of the reason he said, I'm not going to eat that stuff is because it was a bunch of stuff that God had said it wasn't good to eat. And so Daniel made a choice to honor God with his diet, and as a result, his mind stayed clear. And what was God able to do with Daniel? 
As a result of his choice, he was able to communicate with Daniel some of the most profound and significant truths that impact even us today. Hmm. The things that we find in, in Daniel are, are, are deep and abiding truth, and I, I think God wants to communicate similar things to us. Maybe, maybe not prophetic things that have um, value for people way down in, in time, but He wants to communicate with you and me. He, he's interested in our minds. So when you think about keeping your mind pure and your body um, functioning at its best, what kinds of things are on the table? What kinds of things should we consider? The, the, the lowest hanging fruit, the easiest one, of course, is the illicit drugs and, and things that are clearly altering your mind and keeping you from connecting with God. I mean, you take meth or heroin or cocaine or any number of, of um, or even taking prescription drugs uh, that are intended in small doses to, to solve some problems, taking them in a way that is not guided by a doctor um, can lead to some, some significantly bad impact on your mind. Your ability to communicate with God is diminished um, as you take these kinds of drugs. And of course, some people are going to say, well, I, I need a painkiller for this, or I need to take lithium for uh, stability in my mind. Those aren't bad. God, He's not saying don't ever do anything um, that has anything to do with drugs. There, there are religions that think that, and I would suggest that they are incorrect. Um, but, but we do need to think twice about the kinds of things that impact our minds and make choices that uh, won't damage our brains. And that's something that so many things do. Uh, we should be paying attention. How does this impact our mind? But it's not just illegal substances. It's also legal things that can impact our brains. Of course, um, the, the subject of alcohol has to come up. There's uh, all kinds of good stuff that, uh, that we could talk about in the subject of alcohol. Science has done research on this subject quite a bit. Um, one thing that we find is that MRIs demonstrate that alcoholics, people who are addicted to alcohol, they have a significant impact on their frontal lobe function because of their alcohol, uh, alcoholism. But what about that person who drinks uh, moderately? You might be surprised to know that somebody who drinks in moderate is defined as one glass, one drink a week. Even a person who only has one glass a week is going to have an impact on their frontal lobe functioning, according to the studies that have been done. Now, if you look at Proverbs 20, verse 1, the Bible has something to say about this. It says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray is not wise. There are a lot of people that are, as the Bible puts it, led astray by alcohol. In Proverbs chapter 23, verses 31 to 33, we have another piece about this, uh, a little bit more information because it's, it's describing uh, what's happening a little bit in more detail. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. Uh, this is talking about fermented wine. At the, at the last, it bites like a viper, I mean, sorry, like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. What happens with alcohol is that your mind, the, the, the parts of your brain that deal with inhibitions, 
are diminished. Your ability to say no to things is diminished. Your reasoning power is diminished. And so things that you wouldn't normally think about maybe start to go into your mind and things that you wouldn't normally do or say um, become okay. Your inhibitions are, are drawn down. And of course, we know that as a result of alcohol and the uh, diminished response time, people, they drive on, on alcohol and, and bad things happen. You might know some people who have experienced the impact of drunk driving. I know of a couple people in the valley here who've passed away because of a drunk driver. And it's a really sad thing to see that. Domestic violence, a large amount of domestic violence is perpetrated by people who are drinking. Prisons are filled with people who committed crimes while under the influence of alcohol. And, and crimes of an immoral nature tend to happen a lot more often in the context of alcohol. Alcohol does damage, that's pretty clear. But somebody's gonna say, well, what about Jesus, right? He, he turned the, uh, the water into wine. Um, or um, Paul, he tells, he tells Timothy to, to have a little wine uh, to, to settle his stomach. But you've got to recognize what the Bible is saying here. Uh, the words for wine in the Bible, uh, the, the Hebrew, um, I have it written down here somewhere. Uh, but the Hebrews and Greek words, either one of them, they're, they're not specific about whether it's alcoholic um, the wine being alcoholic or non-alcoholic. It just wine is, is, is wine. Grape juice or wine is, is the same thing. So let, let's just think about the wedding in Cana for a second. Do you think Jesus um, saying that uh, the governor said, this is the best wine that I've ever had after Jesus turned the water into wine? Um, does it stand to reason that the, the one who spoke about wine being a mocker and strong drink um, being bad, would have suddenly thought it a good idea to turn 125 gallons of water into alcoholic wine and, uh, and then turning to the crowd and saying, the drinks are on the house. It, is, it doesn't seem like God would do that. Christ, He made the human body. He understands the impacts of alcohol better than anybody. And He's going to do something that's good. And so when that um, the master of the ceremonies drank that wine. What he was drinking was grape juice. Wonderful, good-tasting grape juice, the kind that he'd never tasted before. It was so good. Isaiah 65 verse 8 says, uh, and the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. The thing that God wants us to eat is is that uh, new wine. It's, it's the wine that hasn't fermented yet. It hasn't gone bad. Good stuff. So will I do for my servant's sake, Isaiah says, that I may not destroy them all. There's a blessing in it when it's in the cluster. So the, the words um, in Hebrew, yayin, I think that's how you say it, and in, in Greek, oinos. Um, and it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't ref, uh, distinguish between alcoholic or non-alcoholic. So what about Paul? He says to Timothy, um, it's a good idea to, to have some for your upset stomach. Um, is that alcoholic drinks that, that he's encouraging Timothy to drink? Or is that the good stuff, the, the new wine, the non-alcoholic grape juice? 
I think it's the grape juice. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. There's a, a lot of people that they, they have alcohol as a part of their, I don't know, their social lubricant. It's the thing that helps them open up and be, um, uh, be nice to people, be um, outgoing, and they feel like it's necessary for their life. Um, other people use alcohol as a mechanism for dealing with the pain in their life. And, and I just want to say, whatever your situation is, um, hopefully y- you don't see a need for wine in your life or alcohol. But if you do, um, I just want to point to this verse. God will supply your need. If you find that need for social lubrication so that you can communicate well and nicely with others, ask God to supply that need. If you've got pain in your life that needs some dulling, <laughs> ask God for healing instead. It's a lot better to be healed from pain than to just ignore it. Another thing that damages the frontal lobe is nicotine. And enormous percentages of death in the United States are due to the consumption of nicotine and uh, the smoking. Medical researchers at the Sloan Kettering Institute of Cancer Research in New York say that uh, cigarette, every cigarette that you smoke reduces your life by 14 and a half minutes. That's, that's not, not fun. There's a, a sign at an airport that said, every minute you smoke is a minute less that you live. And <clears throat> that, that's a pretty serious thing. Insurance companies make such a big deal out of it. They, they say that um, the research that they do says that somebody who smokes uh, will live 14 years less than somebody who doesn't smoke, on average. 14 years less. Now, the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not smoke. It just doesn't say that. But it does say, thou shalt not kill. And, and smoking is like self-murder over a really long period of time. It's a guaranteed death. You're going to die one way or the other from smoking, um, but it just doesn't happen really quickly. And I, I don't want anybody, if, if it's a struggle that anybody has in this room, I don't want anybody to think that you're being condemned. Um, we're in this together. And if you struggle with it, better to say, I got a problem with this. Can I have some help, please? Than to, to stuff it under and say, oh, these people, they don't like, they don't like smokers, because that's just not the case. Um, everybody's got a problem somewhere in their life. And the, the most uh, significant thing we can do is just rally around each other and uh, give each other lots of encouragement and and reminders like this one in Philippians 4.13. Paul said, I can do some things through Christ who strengthens me. He said, I can do everything except for stop chewing tobacco. I can do everything except quitting smoking. No, no. He says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I think that's a huge message that we need to give each other as we each struggle with our own things. The Bible encourages us, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other. Um, we, we have a, a really f- fun opportunity of growing together in Christ. There's another een that I should mention, and it's one that's, uh, that's been quite ignored recently, and that's the caffeine. Caffeine is not a neutral subject. It's not a, an okay not a big deal kind of a thing. It's significant. 
Um, it leads to a wide variety of illnesses and disorder. It's uh, one of uh, significant causes or at least contributing factors to depression, uh, long-term depression. And medical experts, they, they don't have any uh, ambiguity about the subject. John Hopkins School of Medicine said some time ago that caffeine is the world's most widely used mind-altering drug. In uh, the Duke University, Dr. James Lane says, what we have found is that caffeine interacts with stress and intensifies it. You feel like, oh, I'm stressed out. I'm, let me get some caffeine. I'm, I'm gonna, it'll, it'll settle me. What it actually does is it, it complicates that. It makes it worse. Caffeine amps you up. It, 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 uh, it makes you jittery. I, I'm not a big caffeine guy. I had some when I was a teenager, and I thought that was a terrible experience, and so I never did it again. But um, I know a lot of people, uh, one of my good friends, uh, he, dealing with uh, late nights and trying to stay up, he, he kept um, drinking caffeine, and, and uh, it, it got to be a real problem in his life, and it caused a lot of significant um, uh, challenges in living over time, and, and it was really hard for him to get off of it, uh, to wean himself off and then to quit. Um, caffeine is addictive, it impacts uh, your whole digestive system, uh, and, uh, and it causes deleterious effects um, in, in all kinds of ways. Now the question is, should Christians ever be addicted to drugs? I could add, addicted to anything. Because the idea of addiction is that it's something that controls you, it keeps you from making your own choice. If you've been addicted to alcohol and gone to AA, uh, there's uh, these ideas that they share about uh, this thing controlling you. And you just have to recognize, I can't do it, it's controlling me. And when you do that, you have to recognize also, I need a power outside of myself. I, I need God. And if you think about something controlling you other than the Spirit of God, it can't be a good thing, can it? It's never going to be a good thing to have something control you outside of Christ. Jesus is a good example for us when we think about addiction. Jesus was dealing with some of the most significant stress that anybody has ever dealt with or ever will deal with. He was bearing the weight of all the sin of all time of everyone in the world. And he, as he hung on the cross in severe physical pain and, and complete mental um, turmoil, uh, he was struggling. And he said, I thirst. And, and the soldiers came and they brought him at the end of a stick, a sponge that had been dipped in, um, in vinegar and gall. And the, the idea was that this would somehow numb the mind a little bit so that they could uh, deal with the pain. Uh, this wasn't a nice thing that the soldiers were doing. They, they were just making the pain last longer. That's all they were doing. But... Uh, as they put it to Jesus' lips, Jesus tasted it, realized what it was, and he refused it. He wouldn't take it. Jesus' example is a good example for us. When, when we're dealing with significant pain and significant trauma and significant emotional distress, our, our next thing shouldn't be to say, I'm thirsty, let me go to the bar. Uh, that'll help me deal with this. Let's let Jesus be our guide. I'm thirsty, but let's not, let's not, go, to the, let's not go to the fountain that, that um, will destroy our minds. Let's go get some water, clear the brain, make it more easily connect with God, the one who will heal and the one who will 
um, relieve our stress and the one who will take our burdens. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? See, some people think, well, it's my body. I'll do with it what I choose. No, it's not. You were designed by somebody. You were created by God. God is your owner. That might sound like a terrible thing, but, but a good owner will, will do good things for you. A good owner will provide for your needs, right? And that's what God promised to do. Uh, and, and when we recognize that God created us and He redeemed us, we're twice bought by God, uh, there, our bodies aren't our own to do whatever we choose with. We are given them on loan. God gives us the responsibility of our bodies, but they're ultimately a temple for Him. He says that He created man in His image. He designed us to look like Him, to, to reflect His image. Continuing on, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Why did Jesus come into the world? What was His what was his point? John 10.10 says, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly, more abundantly. Jesus came to give us the good life, and, and the good life is not the life where we harm ourselves, shorten our lifespans, and create disease. The good life is full of blessing and goodness and joy. So, so let's go back um, to the book of Exodus near the beginning of the Bible, and uh, let's look as, as the Egyptians are leaving Egypt, what does God say to them in Exodus 15, 26? If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, God, He talked about a bunch of different things. Uh, he gave them some civil laws. When this happens, this is the, the result. You know, how, do, how do you handle organizing this whole group of people? How do you deal with, um, I mean, sanitation and sewage and, all, and disease and all kinds of stuff? Um, he gave them moral laws, the Ten Commandments and, and uh, several others that are uh, kind of uh, responses to the Ten Commandments. But then he... he um, and then he gave us the, uh, or he gave the Israelites the ceremonial laws connected with the sanctuary and all its services. But then there was this other group of laws that he gave them that were all about health. And, and he's basically saying, if you follow the rules about health, then I'm not going to put the diseases on you. You're not going to have that impact. What kind of diseases did the Egyptians have? Well, they, they were dying of the same diseases that our cultures are dying of today. Western cultures and Egypt alike dealt with cancer, heart disease, diabetes, tooth decay. <laughs> it was all, you know, the modern maladies were all there in Egypt. And, and God is saying to Israel, do what I tell you, and you're going to live a better life than they did. I'm not going to put those diseases on, on you. And today we're trying to figure out how to deal with the healthcare crisis, and, and God had it solved a long time before. Revelation 14, 7, again says, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. 
We can't be glorifying God when our actions are destroying the temple that He designed for His Holy Spirit. The trouble many of us have, not just with substances like illicit drugs or alcohol or tobacco or other things, um, the, the problem is that many of us are, are eating ourselves into um, an early grave, digging the hole with our fork, so to speak. Um, Paul, he, he talked to people in, uh, in Corinth as though they were, I mean, he's familiar with the, what we call the Olympics today, the games, and he, and he talked to them as though they were part of the games. He says in second, or 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain it. Run to win. That's, that's his idea. And, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a, a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. The word temperate is a, a fun word. Uh, it, it's, uh, when you think of a temperate climate, it's neither hot nor cold, right? It's not too much, it's not too little, it's, it's just right. Uh, to be temperate is to, uh, to not do things that are harmful for you and to do things that aren't harmful for you in moderation what we need and not just for the purpose of pleasure. There's a, a, lot of, a lot of things that we do that are just for pleasure. But, but Paul says, discipline yourselves. Run as though you're one of those racers and you're the one that's going to win. Run to win. If they would discipline their bodies as Olympiads uh, so that they could win a race, how much more should we discipline our bodies when our goal is heaven and our prize is eternity with Jesus? Should we just ignore things and let it go? Or should we, should we have some focus in how we relate to our lives and how we relate to what we choose? Genesis 1.29 says, uh, this is God talking to Adam and Eve, and he says, and God said, see, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth. And every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be food. So in, in the Garden of Eden, there was no meat section in their Walmart. They, they had the fruits and nuts and grains and, and all, all kinds of good stuff. Every herb that yields seed, it says. And, and so this plant-based diet is the foundation of God's design for mankind. And, and the question you have to ask is, did that work out? Was that good? Do, do you think that God's design made sense? Well, just a few chapters later, describing all these people that lived after Adam, uh, the Bible talks about Methuselah. And even though the, the sentence for sin was death, it took a really, really long time to get there. In Genesis 5.27, so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and then he died. How would you like to live 900 years? I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about in, in a... Uh, dilapidated state where you can't get out of bed. I'm talking about energetic, enthusiastic, productive. Uh, would you retire after 65 years, you think? I think Methuselah had, had a long life that he really enjoyed. Hmm. Uh, maybe, maybe the diet that God designed had something to do with that. But then there was this whole flood thing and lots and lots of stuff died and the vegetables on the, on the earth just didn't exist. Um, now, Genesis chapter 7, 2 talks about this a little bit. And, and it says, you shall 
take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two of each animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Uh, there are a lot of stories, children's stories, that read that uh, Noah took how many animals in? How many of each kind? They came in two by two. Well, that's true for the unclean, but, but there is a distinction. The unclean animals came in in pairs, in twos, um, but then the, the clean animals came in in sevens. And, and just as a fun fact, uh, the, the Hebrew idea here isn't um, two of each animal, but it's two pairs. So the unclean came in two pairs, and the clean came in seven pairs, so 14 of the clean. Now, after the flood, there's nothing, it's not like Noah could step out and, uh, and go to his olive orchard and uh, pick some olives. You know, it's not like he could go and, and get his vegetable garden, you know, and, and uh, get the fruit that he needed or the vegetables that he needed. He didn't have that, that resource. They had spent a year on the ark. Well, now he's at the end of that year and he needs something to eat. And so God says, you may now eat of the clean animals if you choose. He gives him that permission. Let's see. Just think about this for a second. If, if Noah had eaten some of the unclean animals, you really wouldn't have much left, would you? They, they would have been gone. Or um, the, the clean animals were the ones that he used to sacrifice. Um, if he sacrificed an unclean animal, they'd, they'd be out of there, right? No, they wouldn't exist today if Noah had, had used those. And so God, he specified which animals were to eat by bringing more of them into the ark. Leviticus describes a little bit more of this detail. Now, some people would say, well, this is just for the Jews, but you've got to recognize that Noah wasn't a Jew and there weren't any Jews on the ark. God was dealing with a health principle. He was talking about what Noah would eat, not about some ceremony, not about not about some um, spiritual law or anything like that. But here in, in Leviticus, it, it goes a little beyond um, the description in Genesis and helps us understand what God meant by clean and unclean. So Leviticus 11 and is where we're going to be. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Now, I know some of you probably went to, uh, to the market uh, yesterday and you got your camel slices, you know, a you, you little, little bit of, of uh, camel hind end, right? And, and, and you're planning on making that camel burger um, for lunch tomorrow. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but a camel is unclean. It chews the cud, but it has padded hooves, padded feet, so you, you can't eat camel. I'm sorry. And, and uh, probably that's not the biggest challenge for you, but uh, verse 7 adds that uh, the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. And, and for many people, this is a shocking thing. It's, it tastes so good. Um, how could God say that's a bad thing? Well, for one thing, it's got, it's got more fat than pretty much ounce for ounce and pretty much any other meat there is. And, and so it's, it's not the healthiest thing Anyway, but science, as you look deeper into the tissue, you, you find these uh, beautiful little worms, the trichinae uh, worm or, or larva. It, it's, uh, unless you heat the meat inside up to about 400 degrees for a certain period of time, those things don't die. And, and then when you eat it, it 
kind of moves into your body and makes you think that you've got all kinds of maladies that you don't really have. Uh, really, all you did was eat something you shouldn't have. And, and when you think of this, it's, it's not just for the Jews that God designed this. Is the Jew, does the Jew have a different stomach than the Gentile? <laughs> did God design people differently? If he's dealing with health, he's dealing with all mankind, not just for Jews. Isaiah 66, in fact, takes us all the way to the end of time um, in verses 15 to 17. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with the flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. So God... He puts Miss Piggy and Mickey Mouse in the same category. Uh, you're, you're not going to be taking uh, mice and uh, uh, cutting them up and putting them into your stir fry. I, I'm pretty confident nobody in here is going to be doing that. And, and God puts the, the pig in the same category as the mouse. And he's asking us to, to not do that either. In Leviticus 11, 9 through 10, we read about the ones, the food that's, that's coming from the ocean. And I just like to encourage kelp. That's a good thing. I despise the stuff, but it's a good thing. It's really great for you. I just, I, do, I don't like the taste, but that's, that's me. Um, but there are other things. If you're going to eat something that comes out of the water that's not a plant, then uh, God says, these you may eat of that are in the water, whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers that you may eat. But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. I've never seen in the Bible where God called something an abomination and then later said, never mind, it's no longer an abomination anymore. It, it was really intended to be thought of as a bad thing. And, and just think about, think about how this works. Um, a while back in the Chesapeake Bay, some people decided they wanted to clean it up. And so what did they do? They put a bunch of oyster beds in because oysters are a filtering um, animal. They take in the poisonous, polluted, nasty water and they absorb all those poisonous, polluted, nastiness things, and, and they, I don't know, somehow they like that stuff, and, and then they, they spew out beautiful, clean, purified water. If you ate those things, what you're eating is the pollution and the poison and the nastiness. God did not intend for us to eat them. He intended for them to be cleaners, and that's great, like the sucker fish in your, in, in your tank at home. Uh, that, that's not what God intended you to eat. Um, the, the, the things that, and in fact, when you look at all the different things that God says you can't eat that are clean, and all the things that, you, that God says you can't eat, they kind of fall into, into a couple different categories. The clean things, well, he, he starts by saying you should really eat the fruits and nuts and, and grains and vegetables and all that kind of stuff. But if you can't eat that, if you're like Noah and you don't have the resources and you need to eat meat, then eat the stuff that is the closest to the plants. Eat the cow. What's the cow eat? The grass, okay? Eat, eat, eat the, um, the, the sheep or the goat. What's the, the sheep eat? Grass, okay? So uh, his, his idea is if you can't eat the plants, 
then eat the thing that does eat the plant. Only one uh, separation, please, is kind of where God goes. And, and in, in the, the next thing, he says, don't eat all these other things. And the, the things that are garbage collectors, uh, the things like, like the oysters, the things that um, eat uh, dead animals, so like the crabs, um, the marines that, that do the, the diving, if they're going and looking for um, dead bodies underground, uh, they're trained to look for the lines of crabs because uh, they're, they're eating dead things. And, and God says, don't eat those things that eat other dead animals. And then he says, don't eat animals that eat other animals in general. So, so lions are out, I'm sorry. No lion meat for you. And, and then you have verse 13. It says, and these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall, they shall not be eaten. They are the, an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard. Eagles are pretty. Don't eat them. Buzzards are not pretty. Don't eat them either. Um, <clears throat> now, the, God says, I've got good stuff planned for you. Good life. I've got the good life planned for you. But Satan says, you know what? If it smells good, you should eat it. If it tastes good, you should eat it. If it feels good, you should do it. But, but when we do that, we're not being controlled by our thoughts and our reason that's connected with God and His truth. We're being controlled by our lusts and our passions, and, and we kind of bypass all the reason. And Satan loves that. If he can grab our lusts, our passions, and, and make us make choices based on them, then he can keep us from obedience with God in so many other areas. But, but didn't this change when Jesus died on the cross? Let's, let's do a thought experiment. I've heard they're good to do. I'm not that great at them. I'm not Einstein. But we'll do a simple thought experiment, okay? So the day before Jesus dies on the cross, you've got a pig. I just want you to keep your eye on that pig. Fast forward 24 hours. Jesus dies on the cross. You're still looking at that pig. Has the pig changed after Jesus' death? No, no, it's still a pig, right? I've read through the Bible a couple times, and, and I have never read anywhere that Jesus died to cleanse pigs. What I have read is that He died to cleanse us from our sin. God didn't clean up the pig when He died on the cross. God cleaned up our hearts. Of course, people will bring out the idea, well, it was a Jewish thing, and now that Christian… Well, okay, so uh, there's… Uh, read through the Bible, and you can read topic after topic after topic that makes sense, it lines up, it's, it's, it, it's perfectly reasonable from A to Y, and then you read Z, and you're like, oh, look, Z is different. It disproves everything I've already read. But that's not how the Bible works. The Bible is consistent. And one of the, the things when it comes to diet that we read is, is this, uh, the Z problem, you might say, is uh, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 9. Uh, this is Peter. It says, the next day when they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. This is noon. He, it's lunchtime. He goes up to pray while they're making, while they're making lunch, and, and he's hungry. His stomach is growling. And uh, now, now keep in mind, there's this guy. He, he, was, he had sent some people to catch Peter and, and, and bring him back. Not catch him, but like uh, talk to him and, and try to bring him, him back. And Cornelius, he wasn't a Jew. He was Italian. And he wanted, 
he wanted Peter to come and help them and talk to them about God. And uh, just keep reading there in Acts chapter 10. Then he became very hungry. He wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything. And the voice came to him again, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, notice Peter didn't understand what this whole thing meant. It was not clear to him from the introduction of this dream that this was about clean food. He was confused. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the man who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And I would say this is absolute proof that Jesus did not change these health principles on the cross because this is years later. And Peter, who was a close associate of Jesus, had no idea that there was any change to the health laws. He, he, he was uh, refusing God, in fact, when God says, rise, kill, and eat. Um, but, but it's also not about the food. In fact, God himself says what God has not called unclean, you shouldn't call unclean. Has God called some foods unclean? Yeah, he has. Well, what was this really talking about? Because if you fast forward a little bit farther, um, the, the request was made for Peter to go to Cornelius' house, and immediately Peter realized what was going on in this vision. And what was the problem? What was the thing that, that uh, was going on? Well, um, the problem was they were racist. Peter was a bigot. He didn't want to go to talk to the Gentiles. Jews, fine, I'll tell them about Jesus, but I don't want to talk to the Gentiles. And, and God was dealing with his bigotry and his racism. And he says, don't call another person unclean. And so a little bit later in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go um, to one of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any pig common or unclean. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say pig. In fact, it says that God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Peter's application, Peter's interpretation of this vision had nothing to do with food or diet. And then later in verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. God is not bigoted. He is not racist. Hmm. In Psalm 84, 11, the Word of God says, no good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Does God want to withhold good things from you? No, He doesn't. Romans 12 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God desires our minds to be renewed so they can connect with God in cl close intimacy, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God says, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Give it all. Lay it all on the altar. There was this guy, uh, Aaron 
Ralston. You might have heard of him. They made a movie about, about him even. He was uh, doing some rock climbing, um, hiking and stuff in uh, the Slot Canyon area in Utah. And he slipped down somewhere and, and uh, a boulder came down and pinned him against the wall, pinned his arm against the wall. And he realized nobody was going to find him in this crack. Uh, nobody was out there anyway, but if, even if somebody was, they wouldn't be able to, to hear him from where he was. They wouldn't be able to see him. It was dark. He was out there for hours. He ran out of his water, and all he had was a pocket knife. And uh, so when he realized that he had no hope of anybody helping him, he went to work. And uh, a little while later, he was less an arm but he got out alive. And it might feel, in some people's cases, like the things we've talked about, if you have to remove some of those things from your life, it, it's like removing one of your limbs. But if this man was willing to remove a limb for an earthly life to keep on living here on earth, how much more should we be willing to make a sacrifice of things that aren't good for us in favor of things that are for heaven? Do you need to make a decision like that today? Maybe it's a simple thing, maybe it's a big deal, um, but uh, whatever it is, is Jesus worth that sacrifice? I think it is. Make that surrender today. Don't wait. There's no reason to wait. It doesn't get better later on. <laughs> doesn't get easier as you think about it more. Just say yes to Jesus. Make a decision to yield your whole life to him.